Well, good morning. As David mentioned earlier, today is Epiphany Sunday. Um, this really marks for us the, the official end of Christmas. Um, although every year uh, we, we really rush rapidly into Christmas, really on the day after Thanksgiving. Um, and as much as we do that, um, that's not Christmas. We're not at Christmas yet. Um, we try to remind um, ourselves during that season that that's Advent. That's the season of looking forward. Um, Christmas actually doesn't begin until Christmas Day. And as John Denver and the Muppets would remind you, there are 12 days of Christmas. Um, and so Epiphany comes at the end of that. It celebrates the recognition of Jesus as the King of the nations, as the Savior of all peoples. But for most of us, after a long month of Black Friday sales, Christmas parties, gift exchanges, traveling to see family and friends, numerous days of feasting. Uh, for most of us, Epiphany uh, really represents our, our holiday fatigue. Right? By the time we get to this point, we're just, we're just worn out. By the time we make it to Epiphany, we're just done with it, if we recognize it at all. It's simply an afterthought, completely overshadowed by the excitement and the celebration of Christmas. If we didn't remind you that today was Epiphany, you probably wouldn't know. Um, which is really too bad, because this is, this is an important day in the life of the church. Um, it's something that we, we want to really take the time to, to look at in the Scripture and to think about this morning. Um, this year, my wife Liz and I got to experience for the first time uh, what it's like having a baby who was born right after Christmas. Um, uh, this time last year, as many of you know, our son Finn was born just three days after Christmas. Totally unexpected, way too early. Um, he wasn't due until April. Um, and coming so early, as many of you know, has changed just about every aspect of our lives. One small part of that, of that question, of all those things that have changed, one thing that we had to deal with is, what were we going to do about his birthday? This year, as his first birthday was approaching, we knew that we were going to have to contend with Christmas. Should we have a party on his actual birthday on December 28th? Or should we wait until the weekend? Um, should we do a... a a party this time of year at all. We know that tons of people are out of town, people are traveling, would people even be able to come to a birthday party three days after Christmas? Well, Liz and I agreed that Finn's first birthday was important. We wanted it to be special. And yet we always knew that it could be overshadowed by Christmas. And so we hung up these blue birthday decorations in a house that was already decked out in red and green for Christmas. Um, we placed birthday presents under the tree because... It's just where you put presents when you have a Christmas tree in your house. Uh, we had this happy birthday banner that we put up on the wall, and it ran right into one that said Merry Christmas. And so when you walked into our house at first sight, um, it was really this confused mess of decorations that seemed to all be clamoring for attention. But as friends gathered to help us celebrate Finn's birthday, it turned out there was no confusion at all. People brought gifts. We sang happy birthday. We ate cake. We took lots of pictures. It was a wonderful party, and it wasn't overshadowed by Christmas. Not in the least. At the time of year when we celebrate God's gift of sending His Son, Liz and I also get to celebrate God's wonderful generosity in giving us our, in giving us our own Son. Liz and I waited a long time to become parents. And we thought it might never happen. And Finn's birth and life are truly miraculous. And coming on the heels of Christmas, we're reminded that God isn't just a universal creator and redeemer, but he is also a loving and personal God. 
He draws near to us. It turns out Christmas didn't compete with Finn's birthday at all. It made it better. And that's how I want us to think about Epiphany this morning. Not as some obscure, weird holiday that's overshadowed by Christmas. Not as the last, the last gasp of a bloated holiday season. But as a celebration that is made better because of its closeness to Christmas. So please follow along as I read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1-12. through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went off on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning, for this time to gather and worship together to celebrate your grace and generosity of sending your Son to redeem that which was lost, to restore what is broken. Father, in this time we have this morning, we pray that you would Open our hearts that we may hear the promises contained in your word that you would give us faith to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. As many of you are aware, um, there's a football game happening tomorrow night. Um, Alabama and Georgia will meet in Atlanta for the college football national championship. And depending on who you are, this game, this particular game, is likely to evoke one of three responses. Um, It could be anger, it could be apathy, or it could be adoration. Because it's a sermon, they all have to start with the same letter. So that's what I'm doing here. I have friends in Oklahoma and in Ohio who consider tomorrow night's game to be the worst possible scenario. I mean, for them, nothing could be more terrible than two SEC teams competing for the national championship. Again. Right, for them, this is a vulgar thing that really shouldn't even be televised. Um, for others, perhaps some of you this morning, a college football championship really means nothing to you. Um, it really has, has no bearing on your life, you're not interested in, you don't understand why people make such a big deal about it. And you honestly couldn't care less who wins or loses. But for some, it is a source of pride. Right? It's an event that is to be celebrated, and it matters deeply to you who wins, and who loses. At halftime during the Warriors and Rockets game on Thursday night, Ernie Johnson, who is a sportscaster for TNT, was wearing a Georgia Bulldogs jersey, and he had a Georgia helmet on the desk in front of him. And in response to this display of Bulldog pride, Charles Barkley, who played basketball for Auburn, shouted out, Roll Tide. Right? This is, 
This is at halftime during an NBA game, right? A professional basketball game. And yet these guys didn't really care about talking about the Warriors and the Rockets. They wanted to talk about Alabama and Georgia. So obviously, for some of us, it's a big deal. Now I'll admit that, that ultimately this, this analogy falls short, right? That, that the college football national championship really is just a football game. It won't change our lives. Um, you know, David may make fun of me for a few days, or he may not want to talk to me for a few days, but our lives are going to go on. They're not going to be fundamentally different. And yet, our responses to it are significant, and they're real. And they're a good reflection of the ways that we respond to the birth of Jesus. It's what plays out in the text that we're looking at this morning. Those who heard that one had been born king of the Jews responded in one of these three ways. With anger, with apathy, or with adoration. The first was the response of anger. Wise men from the east, we are told, they came to Jerusalem because they had seen a star that announced Jesus' birth. They went to Jerusalem because it was the capital city. It's where the temple was located, and more importantly, it's where the king lived. These guys show up in town and they start asking, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And for them, it's a harmless question. Right? Presumably the newborn king would be the son of the current king. They would expect this birth to be a joyous event. But they didn't know the kind of king that Herod was. He was a violent and a cruel ruler. As he grew older, he became increasingly paranoid about threats to his throne. So much so that he executed his wife and three of his sons. To him, news that one had been born king of the Jews was a direct threat to his position and his power as king. And to make matters worse, this wasn't a child born in his household. And so it exposed a deep insecurity in Herod's kingship. You see, Herod was only half Jewish. He was also half Edomite. And he was appointed king by the Roman Senate. And so for Herod, being king of the Jews was about political power. And a threat to that power provoked his anger. Something was going to be taken away from him. And if he would kill his own sons in order to protect his throne, what would stop him from killing the child that these wise men had come to see? In his novel, The Short Reign of Pippin IV, John Steinbeck wrote, Power does not corrupt. Fear corrupts. Perhaps the fear of a loss of power. And this may well be an apt description of King Herod. Once he gained a position of power, he was unwilling to relinquish it to anyone. Fear of losing his power is what drove his anger. A, a 2006 article in, um, in a psychology journal argues that power is really rooted in a desire for autonomy. People who crave power don't really want to control other people. They want complete control over themselves. So, of course, what that means is if you have complete autonomy, then no one can have power or control over you. For Herod, the birth of a new king threatens not only his power, but his autonomy. It means that he's not in control of his own life. And that makes him angry. And so next is the response of apathy. To confirm what the wise men were saying, and to find the exact location where the child would have been born, Herod called in the chief priests and the teachers of the law. These were the religious leaders who made up the Sanhedrin. They were the same Pharisees and Sadducees who would question and challenge Jesus all through his ministry. They are the ones who would eventually put Jesus on trial. And these are the people who would later become, become persecutors of the early church. 
These were also men who knew the Scriptures. They were well acquainted with the writings of the prophets and the promises of a Messiah, a Savior for God's people. And here, their knowledge is put to the test, and they pass with flying colors. When asked where the Messiah was to be born, they answer confidently and correctly, in Bethlehem in Judea. And then they go on to quote the prophet Micah, saying, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And if this were merely a Bible trivia quiz, then these religious, re- these religious leaders would deserve high praise. Right? Because they were asked a tough question, and they came up with the right answer. But the Bible has never been about trivial knowledge. The Pharisees and the Sadducees weren't just keepers of knowledge. They were heirs to a promise. A promise that God would one day rescue his people. That he would fix all that was broken and reclaim all that was lost. News of the Messiah's birth should have filled them with great joy. A great procession of all of these religious leaders should have gone out with the wise men to Bethlehem. But they didn't go. Because they didn't care. Each one returned to his own home, satisfied and proud that he had given the king the right answer. But they had become completely apathetic to the meaning behind that answer. There's a famous televangelist who once said, the gospel is so wonderful, I'd believe it even if it wasn't true. And of course, the problem with that statement is that the gospel is only wonderful if it is true. What lies behind such a statement is an apathy that is settled for religious comfort. For them, for this televangelist, they had found a way to turn religion into good business. It was wonderful news because it made them into millionaires. And that wasn't so different from the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Their sacred knowledge was valuable to the king. It gave them privilege, status, and comfort. And quite simply, they didn't really care if the promises were true. Then finally, we come to the response of adoration. These wise men from the east were foreigners. They were outsiders. They weren't children of the promise of a Messiah. They were pagan astrologers. These are people who searched, they searched the stars for signs and meaning. A tradition often refers to them as the three kings, but, and we are actually going to sing We Three Kings in a little bit because um, it's Epiphany and we have to. Um, but they actually weren't kings at all. They were magi. It basically means that they were sorcerers. They were astrologers. They were people who gave counsel to kings. And we actually don't know how many of them there were. The Bible never tells us how many there were. Um, but, they were but these were men who, whose job was to provide spiritual counsel to kings. During Israel's exile in Babylon, Daniel, the prophet Daniel, served among the Magi to King Nebuchadnezzar. As a prophet, he interpreted the king's genes the king's dreams, and he gave him wise counsel. And in fact, although the Bible doesn't draw a straight line for us on this, it's possible that these wise men knew the Hebrew Scriptures, that they knew the prophecies of a royal birth in Israel because they knew of Daniel. What's remarkable, what's remarkable about these wise men is that they were the wrong people practicing the wrong religion. Astrology was forbidden in the Bible. And yet, as he always does, God stoops down to speak in the languages that people can understand. To reach a group of pagan astrologers, God spoke through a star, and they listened. 
over the last several years, there have been, there's been an awakening going on in the Middle East. Great numbers of Muslims have come to faith in Jesus after seeing him in dreams and in visions. And now for, for those of us in the West, this is a hard thing for us to understand. Because as heirs of the Enlightenment, we are far more swayed by, um, by hard facts, by evidence, by empirical data. But Islam is different. As an Eastern religion, it values dreams and visions. It's a language its people understand, and it's where they look for answers. And so as much as we don't understand it, and as much as it doesn't line up with our experience, it really shouldn't be surprising that in countries where evangelism is illegal, that God would use dreams and visions to bring Muslims to faith. That God stoops down to speak in the languages that we can understand. And so to those who look for dreams and visions, God seems to be using dreams and visions, not to replace Christ, but to bring people to him. And so the Magi came to Jesus. Across the desert they came, on a journey that would have taken three to four months. And in the ancient world, it's highly unlikely that just three men would have traveled over 900 miles on their own. Such a journey requires resources and food and shelter. It was almost certainly a caravan that was much larger than just three people. But over time, we've simply come to associate these men with their gifts, with the things that they brought. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh have been interpreted as symbols of Jesus' kingship and his priesthood and his mortality. And there are interesting things that we can talk about there and how they work as symbols, but the simpler explanation is that each of these things is an expensive and kingly gift. A precious metal, a rare aromatic resin, a valuable perfume, these things represented the very best gift that the Magi could find. Because when you offer adoration to a king, it's not just the thought that counts. The gift that you give really matters. Now, many of you have probably seen the, the Dilly Dilly Bud Light commercials. Um, the first one shows this medieval throne room where these subjects are coming in. They're bringing cases of Bud Light to the king and he looks at them and responds, you know, truly, you are truly a friend of the crown. Dilly Dilly. And then everyone else proclaims, you guys can do it if you want. Dilly Dilly. Um, and then this guy comes in with this weird-looking bottle, and it has this wax seal on top of it, and he sets it in front of the king, and the king looks at it, and he's like, what? What is that? And then, like, really proudly, the guy's like, oh, this is a honey-spiced wheat, this, it's a honey-spiced mead wine that I've really been into lately. And the king just kind of stares at it for a moment, and he's like, please follow Sir Brad, and he's going to show you to the pit of misery. And then everybody goes, the pit of misery, dilly dilly. And you and I can disagree personally over the merits of Bud Light as a quality beer. (laughs) But there's one thing that this commercial gets exactly right. If the king likes Bud Light, then you bring him Bud Light. Right? He doesn't want your triple hopped hipster craft brew. (laughs) To honor a king... You bring gifts that are fit for a king. And that's exactly what the Magi do. They come and they adore him. They worship him as a king and they give him the very best gift that they can find. And so each of us this morning are faced with that same question, um, with these same options. How does the birth of Jesus affect you? After all, the announcement of a Savior means that we need to be saved. It's It's a solution that means the problem is real and necessary. 
it means that we're not self-sufficient, that we're not completely autonomous, that we don't have power over our own lives. The birth means we're not in charge of ourselves. It means there's one to whom we must give an account. And so for some of us, that makes us angry. And for others, the news of a Savior falls on deaf ears. We want Christmas without Christ. And ironically, we often see this in the very people who vehemently want to defend Christmas. Because they they want to defend an empty religious idea of Christmas. Those who claim to be fighting the war on Christmas often talk about an attack on the phrase Merry Christmas. They want to defend the right to say Merry Christmas. And yet they're often apathetic to its true meaning. And really, no person should say Merry Christmas or be forced to say Merry Christmas if they don't mean it. It's not an empty phrase. It's not just a vain greeting. It is the bold proclamation that our Savior has been born. We can't be content to have the right answer, but then do nothing. We can't say Jesus is the reason for the season and then ignore Him for the rest of the year. That's apathy. The hymn, O Come All Ye Faithful, invites us to worship Jesus, saying, O come, let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. And that's what the Magi did. And that's what we celebrate on Epiphany. In the shadow of Christmas, we celebrate the light of the whole world. Outsiders from the East came and adored Jesus. Their worship signified that God is not simply a tribal God or a regional God. He's the God of all creation. Not only is He the King of the Jews, but He is the King of the nations. In Him, all nations will be blessed. All who are far off will be brought near. The lost will be found. The broken will be made whole. The dead will be made alive. Epiphany isn't the last gasp of Christmas. It's the beginning of the after party. Christmas doesn't compete with Epiphany. It makes it better. Today we celebrate that the promises are bigger than we expected. That God didn't just come to save the Jews. He came to save us all. Do you believe that this morning? Do you acknowledge that Jesus has crashed into our world? That He interferes with our rights to ourselves? That He came to save us because we need to be saved? And that He can't be ignored? Beyond anger and apathy, there is adoration. And so do you, do you trust Jesus this morning to be your Savior? To do what you can? Are you ready to worship Him? To belong to Him? By God's grace, come and let us adore Him. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for the overwhelming scope of your grace. Father, in a season that has lots of other things going on, that we are reminded that your promises are actually bigger than our expectations that your grace is larger than our need, that Jesus dominates not only Christmas, but the whole of our lives. Father, may we believe this and cling to him. In his name we pray. Amen.